the topics of ancient epic poetry of the Iliad and the Odyssey are very traditionally male. And so as I was setting Circe's story at the center, I also wanted to honor the epic parts that, you know, were traditionally female, things like parenting and motherhood um, and birth scenes. And those are part of Circe's life. And so I wanted them to be included and to kind of give them their, their epic scope. That's novelist Madeline Miller. She's the author of Circe, which is our most recent National Endowment for the Arts Big Read title. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced, you guessed it, at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Finding out which books are named to the NEA Big Read program is always a lot of fun. Sometimes they're favorites of mine. Sometimes I haven't read them and then get to discover a new book. In the case of Circe, I was absolutely delighted because I had just finished reading it when I got the word it had been chosen, and I hadn't stopped talking about it. It was one of those books I simply couldn't put down while I was reading it, and then I missed being in that world once I had finished. In the novel, Madeline Miller, who's a classicist and whose previous novel is Song of Achilles, well, she retells the story of Circe. Circe is the daughter of the sun god Helios, and so she's a goddess herself. She's also a witch, and her previous claim to fame was turning men into pigs in Homer's epic, The Odyssey. But in Madeline Miller's book, Circe finally gets her own story, and what a story it is. It's a story of gods and mortals. It's a family saga with a dysfunctional family writ large. It's a story of persistence, empathy, transformation, and a hard-won peace. Circe is a beautifully written reimagining of an enduring epic, but I was curious what led Madeline Miller to rethink the goddess Circe. I mean, out of all the women and goddesses sidelined in great myths, why Circe? Well, she's a really tantalizing figure in the Odyssey. Odysseus lands on her island. She turns his men into pigs, but then she ends up helping Odysseus and sort of becomes one of the most helpful characters that he encounters in the entire Odyssey. And then he sails away, and that's the end of the episode. She's really just a cameo. And I was fascinated. I wanted to know more about this character. You know, why is she turning men into pigs? That seems like an important question that doesn't get answered in the episode. And how does she manage to have the amount of power that she has, which is quite unusual for a woman in the ancient world? So that was also interesting. And I was drawn into her witchcraft, which is really distinct from her divinity. In fact, she is the first witch in what is often referred to as Western literature. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Can you just briefly explain the distinction between witchcraft and divinity? Yes. Divine power comes out of the Shazam uh, type of power. But witchcraft is skill, it's dedication, it's working with herbs and potions and poisons. And so it's really knowledge and work-based, which I thought was very interesting. So, so that drew me to her. And most of all, I, I really just wanted to kind of flip the script on the episode. You know, instead of her being the cameo, I wanted to put her at the center of the story. And Odysseus is a cameo, and it's really about sort of her whole life leading up to that. And then after, and he's just kind of another person who comes in and out of her life. Circe was exiled by Zeus for practicing witchcraft. I was really surprised that an, that an Olympic god would fear witchcraft. 
Yes. And that is one of the things that also sort of intrigued me in the Odyssey, because Hermes at one point comes down to sort of help Odysseus as he's going to confront Circe to try and rescue his men. And the god Hermes, you know, basically says to Odysseus, she's quite a powerful witch. So I'm going to give you this herb that will make you immune to her spells. And what is sort of revealed in that moment is that the gods are clearly a little bit nervous about this witchcraft, that it, it really is different and it's something that they don't quite understand. And, you know, that to me kind of fits in with the history of the way witches have been treated in literature and in the world. It's oftentimes witch is the word we give to a woman whose power we can't control. So I feel like Circe is right in line with that. Circe's voice is is a thread that goes through this. It weaves through the whole book. And the story was actually told in her voice, first person. I want you to talk about the process of finding her voice, because I would imagine that would be crucial for you in order to be able to tell this story. Yes, it, it is. And I, I actually have a background in, in theater. And so I really need to be able to hear the character's voice in my head as if they are they are fully formed, three-dimensional, you know, standing in front of me and, and telling their story. So it's a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of sort of trying things out and realizing they don't work and trying again and realizing that doesn't work. I sort of liken it to tuning an instrument that I'm, I'm kind of listening for something. I'm listening for the right note, but I, I have to sort of keep turning and turning and trying things to, to get to that right note. And now sort of looking back on the process, I can retrofill in the fact that what I was looking for was I wanted her voice to be incredibly direct because she is a very direct person. But I also wanted her voice to have this sort of strange archaicism and formality to it, just little hints of that that come out of her being an eternal being born in the halls of, you know, epic deities. <laughs> yeah, well, much is made out of the fact that she has a human voice. Yes. And, and she's scorned by her family for that. Let's talk about those family dynamics. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, and, and um, I was led to that actually right from the Homer. One of the ways that she's described in Homer is as the dread goddess who speaks like a human. And immediately as a novelist, my brain leapt on that because I thought, wow, that's really interesting. You know, usually in the ancient world, when gods appear before humans, it's this terrifying experience. You know, sometimes you incinerate on the spot. If you don't, you know, your hair stands on end. It's sort of this overwhelming and terrifying thing. And yet here she is without that type of voice. She just has a regular human voice. And so immediately I started thinking, well, that would make her an outcast among her family. Um, and she would be this sort of very odd duck in this world of incredibly powerful beings. And, and what would it be like to, born, to be born into that world? And then, of course, there's the fact that the ancient Greek gods, if you know the mythology, are absolutely horrendous. They are selfish and petty and nasty, and they will just destroy you if you, you know, happen to get on their bad side, and then they'll destroy your children and your children's children and kind of on down the lines. And then wonder why you're not honoring them. Exactly, exactly. So today, we would diagnose them as sociopathic narcissists. So Circe <laughs> is sort of born into that, into that family, but she doesn't really have that same psychology. Well, you have a very, very early scene in the book. It happens right after Prometheus is found having given fire to humans and is, you know, horribly tortured. And Circe sees this and is, is drawn to him, even though if she's caught being kind to him, 
she'll suffer the same punishment he does. Yeah, that was a very significant scene for me because Prometheus is another one of these gods who is capable of feeling empathy. And that's that's really, to me, what that human voice with Circe came to symbolize because I have always felt that empathy is one of humanity's greatest and, you know, most saving graces. And so, you know, here she is born into this family where she feels completely alienated, but she can't really put into words why she feels alienated, which I think is an experience that many people have in childhood if they're in families where they don't quite fit in. They sort of can't put their finger on why they don't fit in. And then she meets Prometheus and suddenly she starts to understand herself a little bit better and sort of oh, here is this other thing that I've been looking for, but I, I couldn't really name. Someone else who understands empathy and, and who feels for other people and who's interested in connection, unlike the rest of my, of my family. Uh, when she is exiled on this island, it nonetheless is a very nice island. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. With a, with a very nice house and... Within the constraints of that exile, what I found so interesting is that where she, that's where she really nurtures her power. And I love that part of the book when she was alone with her lions and wolves and really honing her craft. Yeah. And, you know, that was something that was really fun to work with is the fact that it seems like it's going to be this terrible punishment, but actually it ends up being sort of the making of her to have this space by herself where she can really work. And in that, I think I was very influenced by Virginia Woolf and the idea of, you know, a room of one's own. And, you know, Cersei gets an island of her own, which is clearly an upgrade. Well, she was a goddess. She was. She is a goddess. Right. So she has to. But but this idea that that female artists and I very much see Cersei as an artist. And that was something I wanted to be a key piece of her story is that her witchcraft is an art. And also she's an artist as a weaver as well. So she's sort of a double artist. And, and that women often need that kind of retreat in order to be able to hear their own voices because society is so sort of strongly um, either constricting their voices or controlling their voices or just placing so much um, expectation of work that they don't have space for that type of creative retreat, which I think can be so vital for hearing your own voice and sort of being able to follow your own path. So for me, that very much was in line with kind of what Virginia Woolf is talking about there and, and is necessary to Cersei's development as a person and as an artist. Well, well what certainly spoke to me, uh, Cersei, one of her abilities is to transform things. And I'm reading the book and I'm saying, okay, transform something into a lion, please. You need a pet. <laughs> because then everything really will be perfect once you have some fur around <laughs> <laughs> yes, and she ends up surrounding herself with quite a lot of fur in the end. <laughs> yes, she does. I wish we could all have lions. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I do too. It's like the who's who who of gods and demigods and relatives of gods seem to find her on her little island. And an important part of the book is when Daedalus comes. And I was both a little bit surprised to find him in this story and pleased, very pleased, as another craftsperson. They really fit quite well. Tell us why Daedalus was there, because I think that whole business is so important. Mm. So sometimes you'll hear authors say, you know, this character surprised me. And I had not really had that experience until I wrote Daedalus. And he really took me by surprise because I intended him to be a, a much smaller part than he ended up being. But the more I sort of explored his personality and the more I kind of put him in scenes with Cersei, 
the more I realized that he was, in fact, this, this really important um, moment in her life for just the reason you said. You know, he is the first example of another artist that she encounters, of another person who loves crafts and works with their hands. And, you know, to me, I think I came to see them as being just on the opposite sides of the same line. You know, she is this goddess who's almost human, and he is this human who has powers that make him almost a god. And so they're right there next to each other, <laughs> um, and, and they can really speak to each other from that place and from that place of, of loving work and, you know, skill and craft and, and all of that. And it was also, you know, he fit in very nicely to that narrative as well, because her sister is the mother of the Minotaur. It sort of fits. He makes the labyrinth that eventually cages the Minotaur. And so he, he kind of was there in the story already, but he just kept sort of growing and growing and growing. And the other thing that I think was really important to me in both the character of Daedalus and later on in the character of Telemachus, who shows up Odysseus's son, is that, you know, any society that is so strongly constricting the roles of 50% of its population, i.e. all the women, it's not just going to be 50%. It's going to be everyone. And there are going to be men who are being forced into roles that they don't want to be in either. And I think Daedalus is very much kind of chafing with, you know, he feels very constrained in his own life. Well, he's a prisoner to all intents and purposes, isn't he? Yes, he is. He is. So he is on one hand a prisoner, and on the other hand, he's really in enjoying the fact that a key piece of his identity is being a father. And that that's really important to him. And a lot of fathers didn't have that experience. But because he's a single father, his bond with his son is, is primary. And so I, I like that he was a little bit unusual that way, too. We mentioned the Minotaur. I explain a little bit about what that Minotaur is and how Circe happened to be present at his birth. Sure. So Circe has all of these sort of famous myths that touch her story, and one of them is the Minotaur. So her sister is also a witch. Her sister's name is Pacify. She's the queen of Crete. And I, I sort of can't believe that there's not already an HBO miniseries about Pacify because she is a very intense person, as you might imagine, to be the mother of the Minotaur, who is this sort of half bull, half person, flesh eating monster that is famously in mythology slain by the hero Theseus. And usually in the Minotaur myth, the focus is very much on Theseus, who, you know, comes to slay the Minotaur, or it's on Ariadne, who helps Theseus, or it's on Daedalus, who makes the labyrinth that Theseus has to find his way through in order to kill the Minotaur. But very rarely is the focus on the Minotaur's mother, which sort of seems like a major omission. So, <laughs> so you know, that was my way. And also, getting to write a Minotaur C-section scene, definitely career high. <laughs> who could walk away from that one? Yeah, you can't walk away from that. So that was sort of my, my way in, into the Minotaur's story is through the fact that Circe is the Minotaur's aunt, which was very interesting to me. We hear about Odysseus's visit with Circe in Homer, and you're faithful to that account with a couple of exceptions. So I, I would love you to walk me through how you chose what to maintain and, and what to embellish and what to change. Sure. So one of the things that I think is really interesting about the Circe episode in the Odyssey is the fact that it's actually one of the sections narrated by Odysseus himself. He is with the Phaeacians, um, a group of people he's getting some hospitality and help from, and he's telling this story. So 
as soon as I started thinking about that, I realized, you know, this is not some objective version of this story. This is Odysseus's version, two people he's trying to impress. And Odysseus is the great liar and manipulator and storyteller of ancient history um, or ancient literature. And so I think his version is highly suspect. And as soon as you start to look at the section from kind of the perspective of, oh, this is Odysseus trying to make himself look good, a lot of things start to make more sense. You know, there's this terrifying witch, but I overcame her. And in the scene in Homer, he pulls his sword on Circe and threatens her. And she immediately sort of screams and falls to her knees and begs for mercy and invites him into her bed in like, you know, one speech. The woman with power has to be tamed. And it's this very specific, like the phallic sword and the woman on her knees. And it's this sort of very loaded scene. And I thought, wow, yeah, that's definitely Odysseus putting his thumb on the scale there <laughs> to try and make himself look better in that scene. And so I, I really just tried to recenter that whole scene from what it might look like from her perspective, making her not the object of the scene, not the helpmeet, not the person who's serving his story, but the center of it, um, the subject of her own story. So she does not kneel in my version, for instance. You have this great line in the book, humbling women seem a chief pastime for poets as if there can be no story unless we crawl and weep. Yes. And I defy a woman to read that and not nod vigorously. <laughs> well, thank you. And it was certainly something I feel like I see a lot in literature and particularly ancient literature. Do you mind reading from the book? Sure, I'd be happy to. So this passage comes from towards the middle of the novel after Circe has already started turning men into pigs. And the he is Odysseus. She's talking to Odysseus. He asked me once, why pigs? We were seated before my hearth in our usual chairs. He liked the one draped in cowhide with silver inlaid in its carvings. Sometimes he would rub the scrolling absently beneath his thumb. Why not? I said. He gave me a bare smile. I mean it, I would like to know. I knew he meant it. He was not a pious man, but the seeking out of things hidden. This was his highest worship. There were answers in me. I felt them, very deep as last year's bulbs growing fat. Their roots tangled with those moments I had spent against the wall, when my lions were gone, and my spells shut up inside me. After I changed a crew, I would watch them scrabbling and crying in the sty, falling over each other, stupid with their horror. They hated it all. Their newly voluptuous flesh, their delicate split trotters, their swollen bellies dragging in the earth's muck. It was a humiliation, a debasement. They were sick with longing for their hands, those appendages men use to mitigate the world. Come, I would say to them, it's not that bad. You should appreciate a pig's advantages. Mud slick and swift, they are hard to catch. Low to the ground, they cannot easily be knocked over. They are not like dogs. They do not need your love. They can thrive anywhere, on anything, scraps and trash. They look witless and dull, which lulls their enemies. But they are clever. They will remember your face. They never listened. The truth is, men make terrible pigs. Another great line from that book. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And you also gave us a perfectly plausible reason for why she turns men into pigs. 
Yes. And so, so that was another key thing, which is that in later interpretations of the story, people would often just accept that as in sort of like, well, she's evil. She's like, she's one of these capricious gods, you know, women, you know, you can't trust them. They'll turn you into a pig. And I thought, you know, that's not interesting at all. People always do things for reasons, even if we don't agree with their reasons. And so part of what I love to do with the mythology, mythology doesn't really give you, you know, psychology. I would, I would say psychology is implied in many of the myths, but you're never getting the Hamlet soliloquy of these characters. And so part of what I love to do is go in and sort of imagine, well, how would you start doing that? You know, this is a pretty extreme thing to do, turning men into pigs. Why would you do that? And how would you get the power to do that? And and sort of imagining how that might play out. And then, you know, does she keep doing it after Odysseus leaves? I feel like that's an important question, too. And sort of really constructing a, what I think is a plausible three-dimensional psychology around all of that felt very important for honoring her as a full character. Well, you even make her a single mother. I mean, she was a single mother, clearly, but you, you take us into what that means. She becomes pregnant with Odysseus's child, Telenigus. Odysseus did not know when he left to go to go back home. And the goddess Athena wants Telenigus dead, and he is a miserable child. I mean, this is a miserable, miserable child, and... <laughs> I'm sort of listening to Athena thinking, well, you know, she might have a point. (laughs) And and felt very guilty afterwards. But here's Circe battling it out as a single mother. I mean, who even knew goddesses had to think about diapers? (laughs) Yes. Well, and, you know, there is not a lot of diaper changing in the Odyssey. But I've, <laughs> in, a, in a sense, you know, the topics of ancient epic poetry of the Iliad and the Odyssey are very traditionally male. And so as I was setting Circe's story at the center, I also wanted to honor the epic parts that, you know, were traditionally female, things like parenting and motherhood um, and birth scenes. And those are part of Circe's life. And so I wanted them to be included and to kind of give them their, their epic scope. Even goddesses have to walk with their screaming infants at 3 a.m., um, and think, am I ever going to get this child to sleep? And so, you know, I, I sort of wanted the the intensity of those moments. And thankfully, we don't all have goddesses trying to attack our children. But I, I wanted to also capture that feeling of, of how incredibly vulnerable you feel. You know, you go home from the hospital with this infant that is just completely under your care. And, and so many things could go wrong in so many ways. It's this terrifying as... You know, it, it's this terrifying moment. And I think, you know, Cersei is very much experiencing that in kind of a, an, an epic inflated way. But it's, it's something that I wanted to also be a very human feeling. Well, because that's what the gods do for us. They have the epic feelings. Yes, yes. And I think that's really what draws me to these stories and has drawn me to them since I was, since I was a child is the fact that within the six-headed monsters and, you know, within the world of gods, These are very human and relatable stories. You know, Odysseus is this exhausted war veteran who is desperate to get home to his family. And then when he gets home, it's much harder to re-enter his old life than he thought it would be. And, you know, that's a story that is very human and that we have seen down through the, you know, centuries. And Circe's story, you know, struggling with what it means to be a parent and the incredible responsibility and the joy and the hard work that has to go along with that. 
There are really powerful moments in this book between Circe and Penelope and Telemachus, Odysseus's wife and child, when they come to the island after Odysseus has died. You know, very intense, but very quiet moments. Very powerful, I thought. You know, Penelope is one of these other women from ancient literature that I feel like is so fascinating and so tantalizing. And we see her most of the time in the Odyssey. She's literally veiled, um, but also figuratively veiled from us. But it's so clear that she's very interesting, very complex, extremely intelligent. And so there is a myth out there that she and Circe meet. And so I definitely was going to use that myth because I thought, you know, these are two very interesting women. They've been through a lot. They're survivors. They were both single mothers. And I think they had a lot to talk about. And and I very much wanted Circe's story to, in some ways, mirror the action of the Odyssey. So You know, in the Odyssey, Odysseus is yearning for home. He spends all his time trying to get home from the war and thinking of home and his wife and his son and, you know, his parents who are there. And the the longing um, in Greek, it's, it's, it's a longing for nostos is the Greek word, homecoming. And I really wanted Circe's story to be animated by a similar feeling that she also longs for homecoming, but her homecoming isn't with her family. She has to sort of find a home out in the world. And for me, Penelope and Telemachus were a key piece of that. You know, it's interesting because gods might be fickle, but they don't change. Circe does. And I think this book, it's also about transformation. And it's like it traces her hard-won transformation from nymph to witch. And it's so interesting because that's also her power to transform things. Yes, and I wanted it to be very much a novel about about transformation and change and how life is very messy and we go through many different versions and we should always be learning and growing and sort of thinking and but the gods are not capable of that. Most of the gods are not capable of that. They're they're stagnant as you say. So in that she's she's very unusual but it's it's also one of her best qualities is that she's always willing to to learn and try again. Well, this is your second novel. And it's also your second book centered around Greek myths or retelling or reshaping them. And the first was the song of Achilles. And you mentioned briefly what keeps drawing you to these stories, but I wonder if you can say a little bit more about that. Sure. You know, these are stories that I have loved really since I was a child. I, I have a background in classics, and I think I always wanted to understand the characters more, and I was always drawn into the mystery of these beautiful poems and beautiful pieces of art. And so, you know, in the case of Circe, it was sort of who is Circe and why is she turning men into pigs? Who is this amazing, interesting woman? And with Song of Achilles, it was who is Patroclus, this character who is the most beloved companion of Achilles, but who is very much kind of kept in the background and sort of imagining their relationship as lovers and and how that would unfold. We sort of see the end of their story in the Iliad, but I wanted to imagine the beginning of their story. So it's always kind of a mystery that draws me in. You know, with Circe, I, I will admit that it, there was a little bit of a sense of frustration you know, of this feeling of, is that all? You know, is that all this female character gets? And, you know, kind of wanting to push back against that. And with Song of Achilles, I, I felt that the tradition of 
taking Achilles and Patroclus as lovers, which is a very, very old tradition and was well established in the ancient world, had basically been closeted. And so I was sort of frustrated by that because I feel like it should be an interpretation that is out there in the world. And so so it, it sort of comes in a way, both the novels come out of sort of academic passions, but this desire to kind of transform something or, or bring something to light and, and bring this novelistic approach to it. Can you talk about the difference or was there a difference for you in writing The Song of Achilles and writing Circe, aside from the fact that one is your first novel and one is your second, but in your approach to it, did, did something shift for you? Yes. So I, there was a big shift. I didn't know that Circe was coming next while I was working on Song of Achilles because I was totally focused on that. But as soon as I finished it and took a breath, Circe was sort of there saying, it's my turn. I've been waiting this whole time. But I, I didn't really you know, know that that was, that that was going to happen. But in a way, I think that they are opposite. I'm doing opposite things in them. With Song of Achilles, I wanted to take a story that is traditionally very epic, which is the story of the Trojan War and this warrior Achilles, and, and really tell it from a very intimate perspective. You know, talking about the ancient world, not an epic perspective, but the perspective of, for example, ancient lyric poetry, more in the tradition of Sappho. Whereas with Circe, I wanted to take something that has not been considered traditionally epic, i.e. women's lives, and give this woman's life the same epic scope that Odysseus and, and Achilles and all these other ancient heroes have had. So I sort of feel like it was, it was the opposite thing. It was the opposite impulse, going small on a big story and going big on, a, on what would have been considered a smaller story. You mentioned as this throwaway line, your career as a director. Tell me about that. The other thing that I love is Shakespeare. And I actually came to writing through Shakespeare because I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to be a classicist. And then a friend of mine asked me to co-direct a production of Troilus and Cressida, which is Shakespeare's Iliad play. It's Shakespeare's take on all these, all these characters. And it's really funny and it's really nasty and really bitter. And it's a great, great play. I love it. And it was the first time that I had really worked with this material from a storytelling standpoint where I was telling the story. And it was this revelation moment where I realized I want to be telling these stories myself. So first of all, I'm very grateful to theater because I feel like it allowed me to connect the classics and the writing piece together. Um, up until that point, I'd been writing solely contemporary stuff. And then... I also fell in love with Shakespeare. And I think I fell in love with him because he's so psychologically acute. The language is beautiful, but also his characters just make so much sense. And I love seeing him draw these portraits and even very small characters who appear have these startling psychological resonances to them. So I loved that about him. And at the high school where I taught, I founded a Shakespeare program and we would do two to three shows a year with 50 kids. And then um, I ended up founding the Young Professional Company at the Philadelphia Shakespeare Festival and doing their, doing their first season. And then I ended up at, at drama school for a year and studying there, which was amazing and, and really terrific. So I love theater. I love Shakespeare. And I feel that it has also had this profound effect on my storytelling. It's wonderful, too, to have that collaborative aspect in a professional part of your life where writing is so solitary. Yes, yes. It's wonderful to go back and forth between them. I have not been doing any theater recently, and I would love to get back to it because I love that aspect. I love the collaborative aspect. As we said, Circe has been chosen for the big read. And I just wonder, as you think about that, what conversations 
do you think you might like to have Circe begin in communities? Um, I would love to have Circe open up conversations about experiences that, that women have that sometimes don't get talked about. And I would love it to open up conversations about parents and children and female friendships and also, you know, the constrictions that are placed on men at the same time. I would love to have it have it open up conversations about sort of the timelessness of, of many of these stories and also the timeliness of many of these stories. As I was writing this, I, I was very aware that I didn't want it to be a novel that was just for people who already knew the classics. As a, as a Latin teacher, it was incredibly important to me to write it so that this could be an introduction to the classics for people. You don't have to know anything about the classics in order to read either of the novels. You know, if you do, there are going to be some extra kind of hidden goodies in there. But that I, I wanted them to be able to be for everyone because that's what Homer was originally. You know, the Iliad and the Odyssey came out of oral tradition. These were stories that grandparents were telling their grandchildren that were passed down and passed down um, and beloved by everyone. And so I, I wanted to honor that. So I'd love for that to be part of the conversation. I, I would love to hear what, what speaks to readers about this coming-of-age story, a story of finding your power and finding your voice and finding your place in the world. Madeline, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful. Thank you. <laughs> That's Madeline Miller. She's the author of Circe, which is the newest NEA Big Read title. You can find out more about the program at neabigread.org. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. You can subscribe to Artworks wherever you get your podcasts, so please do, and leave us a rating on Apple because it helps people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>